Father, I thank you for the work that your son did on the cross. I thank you for his obedience to you, the Father. I ask, Father God, that you would speak to us today, that you would help us to learn, change us. Holy Spirit, stir in us a desire to be more like your, like, like the Son. I thank you, Father God, for your word and for its truth. I thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together, fellowship. And I ask, Father God, that the words this morning would be from you and not from me. More of you, Lord God, and less of me. In Christ's name, amen. Happy Father's Day. It's good to have you all here. We're taught in the Bible to honor our, our parents. That's very clear. And I wanted to remind you that the reason I wear one of these to church, nice shirt, nice pants, and a tie is because of my dad. So in a way, on Sunday mornings, I honor my earthly father and my heavenly father. And I, you know, Zeke's the only other one here. I think he's the only other one here that, that gets it because he's got a tie on. I don't care whether anybody wears the tie, but I want you to understand that when I do that, I honor my dad. Coming to church was huge for my dad. He had two passions, church music and barbershop harmony. And sometimes the line was kind of kind of weird. We started on Saturday nights. We got everything ready. It was usually a white shirt, good tie, good pants. Everything had to be in there in the right place at the right time. Everything had to look just right because that's how you went to church because you're going to church to honor the king, to honor God. And we always did that on Saturday nights while we watched Lawrence Welk. <clears throat> and if you are really young and you go, what's Lawrence Welk? Ask, ask your grandpa. The Bible does have very strong things to say about honoring our parents. The passage that we look at today is difficult because it's right at the beginning it appears that Jesus says something quite different about honoring parents. The language that he uses is difficult. Let's read the passage. It's in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming with, against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who, is, who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even salt has become tasteless. With what will it be seasoned? 
It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Going back to verse 26, those are harsh words. How could Jesus be teaching us to hate our families? Wouldn't this be a contradiction of, of Scripture? Exodus 20, 12, Ephesians 6, 2, 1 Timothy 5, 8, and other passages exhort us to honor our mother and father and to care for our families. So to understand this passage, we need to understand that Jesus is using a Hebraic statement. It's a cultural thing. And that statement in that culture meant having a preference. When Jesus spoke those words, the people who heard it went, oh, he's making a preference. This same idea shows up other places in Scripture. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He will love the one and hate the other. In Matthew 10:37, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Paul quotes uh, Malachi 1, 2, and 3 in in, in Romans. And he, he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Now, this means priority. His covenant and promises were given to Jacob as the preferred one. Not that God literally and emotionally hated Esau. It's one of preference. The statement of verse 26, though it seems harsh to our ears, was one of preference, loving one more than another. Before we came to Christ, our family may have been our highest priority. And then when we come to Christ, he becomes the highest priority. It's, it's not that, it's not that I, I love Emily any less it's not that I love her less or, or Heidi. It's so good to have you here. Or any one of the kids. It's that I love Jesus more. And the reality is, when I put Jesus in that place, when he is the pinnacle of my priorities, my love for my family increases because Jesus helps me to know how to love. In this passage, Jesus is describing self-denial. The disciple of Jesus puts Jesus first in everything, including family. The Christian life is not man-centered. It's centered on Christ. And we find our life as believers by losing our life. To follow Jesus is to abandon old priorities and things of the past, and be devoted to Christ. In our society, meaning church society in particular, we want Christianity to be warm and and fuzzy. In a way, we could call it Christianity light. Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus calls sinners to surrender everything to him. And the gospel that is presented by Jesus and in the scriptures is not one of having all your needs met. It's not daily happiness, a perfect marriage. All of your kids are obedient all the time. I know all five of mine, they're always obedient, always have been. Right? I'm just looking at one of mine, so... 
The gospel doesn't teach us that your boss is going gonna, is gonna to just keep giving you a raise and, and praising how good you do your job. Every day he just, oh, you're just so good at what you do. And the gospel isn't about people just, yeah, everywhere you go, they just smile at you. And, and your day is just one pleasantry after another. That's not the gospel. And this, unfortunately, is what some people have been told about the gospel. But this is a lie. Life happens. And it can get insanely tough. I know enough of you in here to know it can get really tough. This is why Jesus uses extreme language. Not just in this story, but all through his ministry on earth. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Why does he use this kind of language? Because it's truth. It's true. To follow Christ means giving him everything. All of our relationships, plans, ambitions, goals, and possessions. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, expect to give up everything. This is hard. It's radical. It's radical for us to hear it. And it was radical when Jesus spoke it. It's also a truth that for some it's too much. And they walk away from Jesus. You see, coming to Jesus, it's not like just adding something to our life. It's not just adding somebody to our life. Jesus is not added to our life. He takes over our life. The benefits are eternal. I like to talk about the benefits. Sins are forgiven. You experience God's grace and mercy and peace and joy and this indescribable bless for all of eternity. But to have all those future promises, Jesus must take control of your life. We typically, as human beings, don't want to give up control of our life. We struggle with that. When we do take Jesus seriously and we put him on the throne and he is the pinnacle and he takes control, when we're there... Then we live in the promises that he has, like Romans 8.28. Fabulous promise. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Huge promise. That promise works for believers because God is the one who knows everything possible to be known. He is in control of everything. And because we belong to him, no matter what things may look like in this life, in the natural world, God has a good plan for those who love him, those who follow him, those who have put him on the throne. As Jesus goes on back in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, he says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, he's using very strong language. Especially in that culture. We've got to grasp the cultural aspect. To us, the cross is pleasant and beautiful. We make jewelry out of it. We hang it on our walls. The cross is beautiful. 
in the first century, when Jesus spoke this, the cross was terrible. It was an ugly instrument of torture and execution. It was ugly and an object of shame. You mentioned the cross in that society. You were mentioning something that was gross and ugly. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. It meant death. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to die. You have to be willing to put everything to death. And those that heard those words in that culture knew firsthand that that coming to Christ, that converting from Judaism to Christianity could cost them their life, could cost them every relationship. And there are cultures all over the world today. It's the same thing. I saw it in India. You come to Christ, you risk being killed. You risk having absolutely no family relationships. It's a reality. This helps us to understand how important it is. And and Paul helps us to understand this idea of of death. He says this in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus never presents the gospel as something that will fix everything in your life. Jesus is asking people who were with him and us if they are willing to give up their lives for him. He talks about the cost, and the cost is everything. You can, you can put together with 26 and 27, you can, you can put 33 so we can bounce ahead because it's speaking of the, uh, of the same thing. 33 talks about possessions. To be a disciple, you give everything up. Everything up, including your possessions. So does this mean does this mean that we, we sell everything and, and we just live hand to mouth out on the streets like a beggar? Does this mean that we just reject our families? I think not. That's not what he's getting at. One of the things that helps me is when I when I went through this is in verse thirty three, we need to understand what Jesus means by give up. Some translates Some translations there have renounce, some have forsake, and the Greek word there means to say goodbye to. Just just a simple goodbye. Again, in the culture, this would have been understood as a change in the relationship. It was to become a steward then. Jesus is saying you're going to become a steward of what you have, not the owner. I do not have a tight hold on my stuff. It's all God's anyway. Sometimes we talk that way, but we don't live that way. Everything you have is His. Amen? Jesus is saying, I say goodbye to that ownership kind of relationship with all my things, with all my relationships. This this doesn't mean that we just unload everything. It doesn't mean we can't have nice things and, and, and have things that are meaningful to us. What it means is that I love Jesus and I love Jesus so much that I realize my stuff isn't mine. Jesus just wants me to manage it 
And he wants me to use my stuff and my relationships to the glory of his kingdom. Being a disciple of of Christ changes everything. It changes every priority, every relationship, every possession, everything. Again, put this together with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. It's all about having Jesus on the throne. Jesus, the priority. As Jesus goes on in this story in Luke, he uses two other illustrations. And they're critical to understand some more about what it means to be a disciple. He speaks first of of a tower being built in verses 28 and 30. And he speaks of a king going to war in 31 and 32. And these illustrations were also culturally very, very easy for the people to understand. They were familiar with them. And the message in, in this passage is a message of counting the cost before taking on a major task or making an important decision. Those with Jesus understood this. They understood the first story, the the tower being built. They understood that this is a large project. This isn't just a little shed in the backyard. This is a big undertaking. They also understood the shame that would occur if a builder started the project and couldn't finish it. The reason this is a cultural thing we need to grasp is that shame and honor were very important concepts in that culture. You did whatever was necessary to protect your honor and to begin a a large visual project and not complete it would have brought you shame. The importance of finishing a project was huge in that culture. And I'm not saying that we don't finish things. But, we, you know, if you don't finish anything, your neighbors aren't going to laugh at you. They would have in the first century. Now, some in our neighbors, you know, our neighbors might. You know, if you don't finish cleaning your yard, that's... this is a huge project. And your honor is at stake if you didn't plan how you're going to finish it. Finishing was important. And in verse, verses 29 and 30, finish is from ekteleo, and it means to finish. The ek means, it's a prefix, and it adds to the finish part. It means totally complete, nothing possibly left to do. It is totally and completely finished. The point is a disciple doesn't follow him out of just some emotional whim. A disciple doesn't come to follow Jesus just because of an emotional, manipulative experience. That's That's not how true disciples become his. Jesus is after the heart. He's after the entire being. Everything that you and I are, He wants. He wants everything. So, these two examples are teaching us to count the cost. 
Are you willing to give up everything? This is serious. This is so important. And it's important for us to grasp this. And we, we need to understand that this is how Jesus presents coming to Christ. This, this is how he presents the gospel. It's so important in our culture because many people have a superficial relationship with Jesus. It's superficial. In my life, I've shared Christ many times. And there's been times when people have heard me share the gospel. And their response is, yeah, I believe there's, there's a God. And he and I, we get along. I'm okay. And because of the circumstances, you go, but your life, your life is an absolute disaster. You don't have a disciple-master relationship. You don't get it. You don't get the gospel. It's hard to think that way. The reason is that the truth of the gospel is that to be a disciple of Jesus requires Everything requires death. So Jesus is saying, be like the man building the tower and count the costs. Take this seriously. This whole idea is, is why some people followed Jesus for a while. The crowds just kept getting bigger as Jesus was teaching. And he'd go places and, and the crowds would get bigger and bigger. And and his words, if you go through the Gospels, you, you, you hear the, what Jesus is saying. And, and, and there's kind of a pattern that his words get harder and harder. For example, at one point he's saying, the, the Father and I are one. And to a Jewish audience, he just committed blasphemy. Those were hard words. Was it the truth? Yeah, it's the truth. And so as those things get tough and hard, people were going, this guy's a kook. And they left him. They quit following him. This is also underlying what Jesus, what John means in 1 John chapter 2. It's a difficult passage, but it's, it's the truth. John 2, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they... All are not of us. This is hard. Listen carefully. I got your attention. I do not believe to the root core of who I am and everything that I am. I do not believe that a person can that is truly a believer, truly a disciple of Christ. I don't believe a person can lose their salvation. Because it's a work that God has done. But I also have to have room in my theology and a space in in me to believe that there are people who have been in the church maybe for most of their life. They say they're believers. They, they, They may look like believers. They may sound like believers. But they defect in some way. And by defect, what I what I mean is they deny Christ. And they will reject him. And they will be lost forever unless they repent. You see, in the church, especially in our culture where we've made church so comfortable, some people will commit just enough to have 
the appearance of being a follower of Jesus. I mean, really, being in church, it, it looks good. And it, and it can feel good. The truth in the gospel, the truth in the Bible, the truth in Jesus' words is that he did not come and die for people to be comfortable. His church is not to be a place of complacency and escape. As disciples, we're asked to do some rather difficult things. We're called to exhort one another, love one another, build one another up, encourage growth. And in addition to all that, we're to go out and we're to attract new believers and be used of God in this discipleship-making process. No matter how you look at that, it all can be messy and awkward and often very uncomfortable. Church is not to be comfortable. There are times when I step into the pulpit and there's a part of me that just wants to make you uncomfortable. In the right way. Counting the cost means you are willing to go all the way. Finish the race, as Paul says. Complete the tasks that God has for you. And that, that's behind these two illustrations. The illustration of the king going to war. It gives a similar message. The enemy is on the way. So what king would not assess that enemy? Maybe send out spies or whatever. There's an assessment that's being made. And if the king's assessment shows that, as Jesus talks about, there's 20,000 to 10,000, man, I don't think we're going to make it. So you change your strategy. You think it through. You made the assessment. So you send a delegation and you ask for peace. A wise king looks at the reality, counts the cost. And as believers, as true followers of Jesus, we need to help people understand the gospel and understand that that truth of the gospel requires everything. It requires that you give it all up. We need to help people understand Yeah, their need for a Savior. We need to do that. We also need to help them understand that to come to Jesus requires death. You die to everything. There there isn't anything more important than this. There's no decision more important than choosing to follow Christ. Nothing more important. So we need to help people count the cost. And I believe within the church, we need to help one another as we continue to follow Jesus. We need to help one another count the cost. The truth is that when the gospel is presented and the Spirit of God has been at work in a person's life, when we tell them the truth about discipleship, when we tell them that Jesus wants everything, when we tell people the truth that That it's not that you're going to come to Christ and your life will be totally bliss. They're not going to stop and not accept Christ. If Jesus is true and the Holy Spirit is doing what we believe he does and he stirred a heart, then a person's going to come to Jesus. They need to know what the truth is. Over the years, there's been so many times when I've 
presented the gospel to somebody and I've, I've shared Jesus and I, I've shared Christ in their life is a total disaster. And what I've wanted to do is, is I've wanted to go down that path of telling them if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be good. Like I said earlier, it's just going to be warm, fuzzy. You're going to get everything that you ever wanted. Your life will be, be just so cool and all of your problems will disappear. Because I want to sell them Jesus. I want them to accept Jesus. I want that opportunity to pray with them to come to Jesus. I want them in the kingdom. So, so I gotta, I gotta give them that appeal. But that's not the truth. The bottom line is, if a person is at a place of knowing they need a Savior, if that's truly where the Spirit of God has brought them and the, and the Spirit is working in their life, they need to know that all their problems aren't going to go away. They need to accept Jesus so that He will take them through. They need to know that, that Jesus just becomes greater than all the problems and fears. Jesus gets us through trials and problems, not around them. Keep that in your head as you go through this life. You go through it with Jesus. He doesn't take us around. The psalmist said it this way, Psalms 23, Though he lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. Think it through. It's the valley of the shadow of death. That's intense. The valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus, our master, our shepherd. Remember the other parables we've talked about. He leads us. Where does he lead us? He doesn't go, you know what? That's the valley of the shadow of death. We're going to go over that pass and over the mountains and we'll come on the other side. That's not Jesus. That's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is he said, that's the valley of the shadow of death. Come with me and follow me. We're going right through. Whatever your valley is, he's going to take you through. And that's what we need to share with people when we share the gospel with them. And that leads us to the last part of this this story. Verse 34, Luke 14. Jesus says, Therefore salt is good, but even salt has become tasteless. If it becomes tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. In that culture, salt was incredibly valuable. It was so in, so valuable in, in that ancient society that sometimes you were paid in salt and, you know, Scott, you go out and you, you do whatever it is you do. Sometimes I can't figure out what you're talking about. When You know, whatever it is you do for your job, and you come back for your paycheck, and they give you a bag of salt. Take that home and see how it works for you. Um, in that culture, that was permissible because salt was so valuable. And one of the primary reasons it was so valuable is because there was no refrigeration so salt, they, they discovered somehow, was a principal way of preserving meat. It was very important. It was very useful. They, they knew that it preserved meat, and they also knew how it made food taste good. We don't, we don't go there, you know. 
Sometimes we, we use it with jerky or something like that as a preservative, but we mostly just pour it on food so that it, we, you know, we can have a different kind of taste. Salt also had, had this, this value and, and, and it had developed in that culture to become a, a symbol of loyalty. You put that all together and then you hear these words of Jesus and he says, if the salt becomes tasteless, and one of the reasons that salt was a preservative is that it, in its pure form, it, it didn't deteriorate. It, it, had a, it had a standard, you will. It, it was constant. It didn't change. Its nature didn't decay into something else. However, when he spoke this, they also understood something else about salt in the first century. And that was that in Israel, where this story is taking place, the salt came from the Dead Sea. And coming from the sea, it was also combined with other things. And one of the principal things it was combined with was gypsum. And so if the salt wasn't processed just right, the chemical properties of the gypsum would diminish the effectiveness of the salt. And it would render the salt useless. It wouldn't taste good and it wouldn't preserve the meat the same way. So they had to work with it just so, so that the salt would be what it was supposed to be. Now, if your salt lost its saltiness, you couldn't do anything with it. It was totally useless. You, you had to be very careful how you disposed of bad salt because it would kill vegetation. You, you couldn't throw it out with the manure, you know, out in the compost pile, because then you couldn't use that on your field, because the salt and, and gypsum and, you know, all that, it would, it would not allow your plants to grow. It wouldn't be, the manure wouldn't be effective as a fertilizer. This same point, then, of these last two verses is, is something Jesus has used before. Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And, the, and that last phrase helps us understand its uselessness. When they disposed of bad salt, they poured it on the roads and the pathways. The plants wouldn't grow there. Kind of was helpful. Kind of. And you'd walk on it. I mean, there wasn't anything you could do with it. So what does that mean for us? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. If you're a disciple, then you have a certain role in society. You have a role in society as a disciple of preservation and influence. So the two major things we see in salt is that it was used as a preservative and as a seasoning. So a disciple's role in society is one of preservation and influence. When a person comes to Christ, when they become a disciple of Jesus, 
their role in society changes. Now, for all of us, those of us here this morning and those listening and watching, we can have that change of role. And if you're, a, 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 if you're saved, if you have truly come to Christ, you can still be corrupted by the world. And if you are corrupted by the world, then how can you influence it? If you live just like the world, you're a true believer and you live like the world, how can the world see Jesus? Jesus is very emphatically telling us, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be saved, if you want everything associated with that, make me the highest priority. There's nothing better, nothing bigger, nothing higher than Jesus. If we're his disciples, he sits on the throne of the universe and we submit to him and love him with our whole heart, mind, and soul. And he uses us. He uses us to bring the message of the gospel to the world. And our world needs that message so desperately. We bring seasoning. And preservation because of the truth of who Jesus is. That's a disciple. As disciples, we also know that there are times when we fail. We fail. Sometimes we don't battle the sin well and we stumble that way. We know we struggle with with sin. We know we struggle with keeping Jesus on the throne. But in the believer, the true disciple, the one who's, who's made Jesus Lord and King and has that disciple-master relationship, our heart always comes back to that. Jesus is the King. We always come back to that. And in his grace and mercy and power, he continues to work in us and through us as salt to a world. You're the salt of the earth. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, if you're watching this this morning and you're a believer, your role in society is to be salt. If you're here this morning or you're watching and you don't know Jesus, then you need to know him as master. You need to come to Jesus. He's not going to make everything perfect in your life, but he'll take you through anything. Make him Lord. Father, I ask that you would be with us. If there would be anyone here or watching that wants to acknowledge you, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Hear their prayer today, Father. Let them come to you. Let them count the cost and see that there isn't anything of greater value than Jesus. Count the cost and be willing to put everything to death for you. Father, thank you. 
Thank you that you've called us to be yours. That you've brought us into your family and you've adopted us. Holy Spirit, stir us up to be people of the word. People of the kingdom. People who are salt. People who are light in a dark world. Use us, Father. And be glorified in all that we are. As we die to ourselves and live for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work you did on the cross for us. In your name, amen.